I think the history of women's cricket is only now starting to be told. Girls' cricket has hitherto been regarded as a joke by most people. Not going through the six boxes of stuff which have been sitting in storage for years, the original 1934-35 scorebook was in amongst all these records. We couldn't always guarantee sponsorship because we were never in the limelight. I think it's the biggest challenge of their lives. They see England as the cricketing nation because cricket began there. When Elise Perry hit the ball over the boundary, I just went, oh my goodness. No body line, no barracking, just good cricket. Hello and welcome to episode six of The Maiden Summer, the story behind a famous sporting contest and the growth of Australian women's cricket. I'm Nick Richardson and in this episode we hear how women's cricket tries to build on the success of the 1988 World Cup victory at home and what that means for the next steps in the game's evolution. We'll find out why the dreaded collots are finally condemned to history and what it takes for women to get their own version of the Ashes Trophy. And we'll hear the inside story of what it took to seal the future of Australian women's cricket and who was there to see it. Let's start with one of the important sidelights of the 1988 World Cup, the appearance in Australia of former English captain and that force of nature, Rachel Hayhoe Flint. She's here to do some commentary work, but she also spends time with the Australian Women's Cricket Council talking about the road ahead for women's cricket, in her country and ours. Ray Sneddon, the person hired to hatch the marketing strategy to get women's cricket media coverage and sponsorship, remembers what emerges from those discussions. We just jotted things down uh, on a piece of paper and uh, it was on both sides all about getting together with the men's cricket. Bringing men's and women's cricket together isn't an entirely radical idea In fact, it's been going on at several Melbourne clubs for a while, as Ray can attest. And it seems that English thinking is along those lines too. And what's more, there are some powerful forces here driving the amalgamation agenda, with the federal government pushing the Australian Sports Commission to not just bring men's and women's cricket together, but most sports. I think the federal government were pushing them to to Mm, bring... The major sports together. In fact, they set up the Women in Sport as a um, committee of the Australian Sports Commission, and that was chaired by Hazel Hall. The integration, maybe amalgamation, depending on who you talk to, is still a few years away, and Ray's time at the Australian Women's Cricket Council is coming to an end. But he feels there's been progress in the decade he's been there. I can never remember feeling that we were going backwards. I always felt that there was... Um, enough happening around the place to continue pushing, continue moving forward. And of course, with the Sports Commission trying to bring the sports together, it started to bring the development programs at least together. In those days, cricket had Kanga cricket, that was for the primary schools. So it got back into primary schools um, uh, thoughts and PE teachers were not They were, in those days, being put off more than being put on to certainly the state system schools. And once Kanga Cricket came in and became a feature at, you know, state and test matches and so forth, that uh, helped enormously in the interest at the school level and the participation uh, level. So it was, um, you know, all all those happenings in the 70s, early 80s were um, very timely. The AWCC and Ray have been working to a master plan to build participation rates. 
with the advent of kanga cricket in primary school and have a go in high schools, participation blossoms beyond 20,000 girls and women across the nation. That 1988 World Cup generates the kind of media coverage that's more common back in the 1930s, and it's led by women, again, and a mixture of seasoned reporters, including Judy Joy Davies and Peg McMahon, with some newer recruits, including Tracy Holmes and Amanda Weaver. And this time, there are a few male journalists who are keen to cover the women's game, even if some of them find it a bit more challenging than they expected. We had reputedly the fastest women bowler in uh, in Victoria, Sharon Treadrea. I organised a media a cricket match, media versus the women, and I can remember to this day uh, one of the sports journos getting a bouncer from Sharon uh, that he didn't see. <laughs> Whipped past his nose, he said, God, you didn't tell me she's that fast. But it's another encounter between men's and women's cricket that marks the next stage of the exposure of women's cricket to a much broader audience. Zoe Goss is 26, an athletic and talented West Australian all-rounder who made her first tour of England under Anne Mitchell's management in 1987. She's already an experienced cricketer who's played 42 one-day internationals for her country, and then she receives an unusual call-up. It's 1994 and there's a charity match to be played at the SCG to raise funds for the Bradman Museum. There'll be two teams, the Bradman 11 and the World 11. Anne Mitchell recalls what happens next. We had uh, Matt Ridley as the CEO at that time, and it was his idea to use Zoe because she was a bigger girl in stature than, say, someone like Melinda Clark, who's a slight batter and so on, a slighter sort of figure. And he thought that she could compete on a fairly equal level in that team. Zoe is selected to play for the Bradman 11 alongside Bob Simpson, Greg Chappell, Dennis Lilly, Jeff Thompson and David Hooks. They line up against a World 11 that features Sunil Gavaskar, Barry Richards, David Gower, Graham Pollock, Andy Roberts, Michael Holding and a bloke called Brian Lara. The TV audience is enormous and there's about 17,500 people in the ground. Anne Mitchell's one of them. It was a thrilling night, actually. I think she batted first, scored mid-20s. Then when they went in the field, people could see, by now they'd got a taste for it, that she was the only woman there. And they got a feel for it, and they were calling out, Gossie, Zoe, Zoe, from the crowds. <laughs> and it was fantastic. What happens next becomes part of a rare tale. But let's give it some context first. Eight months before this match, Brian Lara has made what is the world's highest test match score. And then a few months after that, he scores 500 in a first-class match. His last appearance at the SCG before this steamy evening in December was against Australia when he made 277. So Zoe Goss has called on to bowl to Lara. And on the third ball, he launches one of his expansive drives and edges it behind keeper Steve Rickson, who eagle-eyed, as usual, notices Lara has just overbalanced in the shot and so takes off the bails, just to be sure. If you listen to it now, there's the unmistakable commentary of Tony Gregg as he exclaims, Zoe's got him. Zoe's got Brian Lara. It's quite a moment. 
once she got out there fielding and she'd had her bat and then she bowled that ball that got Lara, I think people learnt a little bit of respect and that was part of the whole movement because the publicity before that had been a bit gimmicky. But here they were seeing a woman able to do that and realising they have got ability in this game. There's something else noticeable that night for those who've never seen women's cricket. Zoe's wearing collots and long socks. That too's about to change. So the steady growth in numbers, the advent of sponsorship that gives the women's game the capacity to support itself, and now an element of recognition. We've seen all this before. So will it last this time? Remember those annual interstate carnivals played over the summer break so the women can use their annual leave to ensure they're able to play? Well, that's been ditched too and replaced by a new national league and the teams will play for what will be called the Ruth Preddy Cup to commemorate Ruth's long career playing the game, managing teams and writing about cricket. Former New South Wales player and the first woman appointed to the board of Cricket New South Wales as well as the outgoing executive director of the Bradman Museum, Rena Hoare, explains what this new carnival looks like. Every second weekend, the team would travel. They would leave the Friday night. They'd play Saturday and Sunday, 250 over matches, fly home Sunday night, and then they would train on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So all of a sudden, that brought the travel in. It was easier on the girls that didn't work on a weekend, they, they it was made to suit them. So you, you had um, players that were saying, well, we don't have to give up two weeks of our annual leave. There was funding to help fund some of that cost. It was equalised across all states. So the funding model was well developed by Women's Cricket Australia. And then you had a couple of paid positions that came out of the funding that the Australian Cricket Board provided that funded people like Sucro. Christina Matthews was the development officer and still playing. And then each state body was starting to get closer to their men's association and therefore there was money being covered for the state team, even if it was just uniforms and they were doing travel subsidies to initially. So that's really what changed. In its way, all of this is building to the Women's World Cup in India in 1997 when we're ready for another watershed moment. Belinda Clark leads the Australians and scores a record double century in one of the early rounds, becoming the first cricketer, male or female, to achieve the feat in a one-day international. Belinda Clark's performance is not the only noteworthy element. The abrasive Indian grounds convince the Aussies that they're better off wearing trousers rather than collots and socks. The trousers will stay for all conditions. The Aussies storm through the tournament and play New Zealand in the final at Eden Gardens in cricket-mad Kolkata. There's barely controlled chaos. Belinda Clark says her eardrums are buzzing. She's never played in front of such a crowd before. Australia wins by five wickets and returns home triumphant. One good thing leads to another. David Morgan, the CEO of the Commonwealth Bank, loves the way the Australian women go about their cricket. His daughter's been to a clinic run by Belinda Clark and she loves it. So David sets in train what will become one of the enduring sponsorship agreements of contemporary Australian sport when the Commonwealth Bank sponsors the national women's team. A 
Events are now moving quickly. In October 1997, the Old Women's Cricket Council changes its name and status to become an incorporated association, Women's Cricket in Australia, Inc. Then it's off to England for the 1998 Test Series, and that turns out not to be just any series. During this podcast, we've avoided calling those early test matches between Australia and England the Ashes. The reason's simple enough, they weren't called the Ashes. No one on either side referred to it as that, and even the media coverage avoided the description. There wasn't a trophy, and the Ashes itself was so heavily bound up in the men's game. And even though there's always been a fair bit of hard-nosed competition between the two teams, England, especially in those first few test series, try to avoid any suggestion of trying too hard, and you'll remember that their lofty view was based on a sense of superiority that becomes more tenuous as the Australian game develops. But the Australians are keen to have some kind of trophy that recognises the contest with England and to give both sides something else to play for. That's where Norma Ezard comes in. Most Australians will never have heard of Norma, but she's an important figure who turns a shared history into something tangible. Norma's managed England teams and is leading the Women's Cricket Association in England when the Aussies arrive for the 1998 tour. Norma's the last WCA chief executive. After 72 years, the association is about to merge with the England and Wales Cricket Board. The English women will no longer be separated from the men. English cricket is English cricket, regardless of your gender. So Norma gets to work. And she reckons if there's going to be a women's trophy for England-Australia tests, it should be the Ashes too. She gets a friend to carve a wooden cricket ball from a 300-year-old yew tree. And when the one-day international series arrives at Lord's, Norma takes a small bat signed by both teams, a copy of the WCA constitution because that won't be needed anymore, and enlists someone to find a wok from the MCC kitchen. Only one problem, the miniature bat is still a little too big for the walk. Eventually, though, in front of the Australian captain, Belinda Clark, and English skipper, Karen Smithies, there's a small fire and the ashes from the walk are put in the carved wooden cricket ball. It's the first ashes trophy for women's cricket. Cricket historian Raf Nicholson reckons it's a significant moment for Australian-England women's cricket. I think that decision in 1998 to generate women's ashes was actually a genius move, despite the fact that at the time, most of the women who were involved in the kind of the burning ceremony didn't really understand the importance of it. You know, the whole point of the decision in 1998 to create some women's ashes is to say, well, we're going to have a bit of a tradition of our own. Um, so they end up kind of, they, they get this little mini bat and both England and Australian teams sign it and then they they burn it in a wok in the, in the garden at Lord's. Um, so it's very much kind of done a bit on the hoof and, you know, if they were doing it today, there'd be all this kind of jazzy PR stuff around it. But at the time, it, it felt like quite an insignificant moment. But I do think that subsequently having that origin story and having those ashes and now it's in this um, fancy new trophy but you've still got the original wooden ball with the ashes of the of the bat um you, you, you know that 
is something that the women's game has that's different to the men's game, but it plays into that Ashes mythology. So it's got kind of the best of both worlds. You're almost, you're playing off an existing men's cricket rivalry um, and you're using that name of the Ashes, but we've also got our own story and therefore we can kind of generate interest in the women's game as well. Sometimes you do think that to the English and Australian players, the women's Ashes is just as significant to them or perhaps sometimes even more significant to them than winning a World Cup. The three test match series is drawn and Australia gets to claim the first Ashes. Back home, Anne Mitchell steps away from her leadership role. She's exhausted from years of advocating for change, trying to enlist help to support the game and knows exactly what the future of women's cricket needs for it to take the next big step. All these things made me say, we have to get together with the men. It's logical. They have the resources. They have the money behind them. They have the grounds within each state, major grounds, etc. We have to do it. The challenge is to find someone who can do the job. It has to be someone with a special skill set. Anne discusses it with the Australian Women's Cricket CEO, Sue Crow, to work out who would be the best candidate. And Sue Crow was our CEO at the time, and she said to me, well, find a woman who can lead us with a high profile, you know, in the uh, media, et cetera, et cetera, because that'll really help us with our image and with where we're trying to go and so on. So I went up to talk to uh, Dame Quentin Bryce. She wasn't a dame at the time, but I went up because she was principal of Women's College at Sydney University, and I was working there. I sat with her for about half an hour and I said, look, we need someone who can lead, who has a good profile and can really take us into the next, you know, decades and future and work towards this. She wasn't convinced that we should go and join with the men because she was running, I think, a women's college at the time. She saw it was better for women's own and a lot of people back then did. But I convinced her in the end because I said, we simply haven't got the resources to go up to the next step, up the stages. Anyway, so after I talked to her for half an hour and we talked about other women she might be able to get, she said to me at the end, I think um, I'd like to do that. And I said, you would? Because I knew she didn't know much about cricket. And I said, "Uh, okay, that would be wonderful. So I rushed off back to my office and I rang Sue Crow and said, uh, Quentin Bryce says she'd like to take over. There's only one obstacle. Australia's future Governor-General, Quentin Bryce, doesn't know a lot about cricket. So Anne decides to find Quentin someone who can help. Anne picks someone with a sound business knowledge, but has also played cricket and managed teams. The self-confessed cricket tragic, Rena Hall. And then she approached me and said, look, we've got this plan, we want to put this lady called Quentin Bryce in as president, but because I was managing the New South Wales team and I knew, I felt I had the confidence of the players and felt that Quentin needed some cricket knowledge support behind her and also somebody that was connected to the players. And I, I have to tell you, I, I was pretty gobsmacked. I wouldn't have thought myself to get that wrong anyway. I, and I accepted it. There's also a change in the top of the Australian Cricket Board. Malcolm Speed becomes CEO and embarks on discussions about integration. He and Sue Crow talk about it over coffee, over many mornings. 
Malcolm Speed understands where all this is going and what he needs to do. Rena Hoare explains. He then could see that jettisoning us wasn't an option. He had to find a way of convincing the cricket board that integration could happen and, and what would the steps be. And, and he had the vision to put his management team onto it and to work with Sue Crow until he was confident enough to then say, well, let's start talking to Women's Cricket Australia. The negotiations were long and not always easy. And Anne Mitchell isn't convinced the men initially are on board. It then took a while for the guys to work out where we were at and what potential we had and so on. So I'd say a decade later, when we'd been playing, continuing with national championships, which had changed format slightly, and with uh, T20s and so on, Channel 10 finally decided to go with the Women's Big Bash League connected to the, the current Big Bash clubs. Once they saw that this got an audience and it opened it up to some of our former cricketers who were taken on as commentators too, it just changed everything around. The general public talking to me about how they were watching the Women's Big Bash and they could talk to you about names of players, etc. This was something foreign to us in the past and was just wonderful. The discussions are not without their problems. Some of the states who make up the Australian Cricket Board have no contact with their local women's cricket organisations. They just don't know what's going on for women in their state, how developed the game is, who's playing it and how many are playing it. It makes for some complex conversations. But Rena sees how Quentin manages to turn that around. She would personally invite them to matches. She then did things like uh, hosted events, which, you know, she was just such a professional at hosting events whereas the women's cricket sort of network were not good at hosting events. Quentin put a whole new class of style over hosting event, which the Australian cricket board directors would come to. She might host an event in New South Wales one week or the next week she might host something in Victoria or then she would ring her delegate from South Australia and say, look, can we invite them? And I, I can remember the South Australian delegate saying, oh, the British Australian board directors will never turn up to a women's match. So she under her own cost flew to South Australia and hosted an event at a test match down there that they were hosting at one of the universities and she actually got Craig O'Connor to leave a men's shield match to come over to watch the women's test match. And I don't think anyone else could have done that at the time. Dame Quentin Bryce's role in helping Australian women's cricket is one of those neglected stories in the nation's recent sporting history. In its way... It shows the importance of that coincidence of the right time with the right people. It also underlines just how important individuals can be to drive the required change, whether it's Barbara Ray in Bendigo, Lily Pullett-Harris in Tasmania a century earlier, Nellie Gregory, Margaret Peden in the 1930s, or Anne Mitchell. Rena remembers how her partnership with Dame Quentin worked. Quentin was fantastic. Yes, I connected her to the, as she used to say to me, I'm the bat and ball lady. And we had a really good rapport where the conversation went to cricket. I was by her side and uh, part of the conversation. And if it turned to international affairs or um, politics, you know, she didn't need me. <laughs> she could hold the room. She was such an elegant person whose presence you felt that when she stepped into the Cricket Australia boardroom and, and sat at the table at the board directors, she could hold her own. Walk into the room, sit down at the table and, um, you know, let's talk integration, let's talk equality. 
let's talk, you know, where the women can fit in. What are your concerns with the women? So she turned the entire conversation to get them to think about how the women are going to fit into your structure, not if we're going to fit in, it's how we're going to do it. These are some of the issues. So she had that fabulous um, history and knowledge of women's um, equality, anti-discrimination, all of that, which, you know, they had none. So she was the perfect person to sit at that table to get a deal thrashed out where at the end of the day, yes, the sport was integrated, but, you know, that meant that the Australian Cricket Board funded the development and marketing and promotion of the women's game. The final resolution is a staged integration that signals the long-term intent for men's and women's cricket in Australia to come together, but by a series of small steps. The message, though, of getting the two games together is now an international one. Former Australian captain Lynn Larson is working with the International Women's Cricket Council on a global plan for our amalgamation. The IWCC, which is at the time driven by Chris Briley, I was privileged to be able to work with her in a, a research officer role where we were sort of looking at the, the state of the women's game on a global basis. But then we pulled together what was going to be that governance model uh, for a merger of the, the women's game at the international level, so the IWCC with the ICC. Now, that happened in um, 2005 in South Africa, officially, at the World Cup there. And, and going forward from there, the fact that the women's game um, was under the men's banner. So not too long after that, you would see, you know, so those international tournaments that, you know, the, the T20 World Cups and so on were run by that professional body with money, the broadcast rights, the professional promotion and media portrayal of the game just changed completely. You had you had male commentators who knew the game, knew the women, and and even that seemed to give it a legitimacy, I think, with the sporting public when you, you had these commentators there talking about girls appreciating their skills. And it wasn't sort of this token, oh, well, yes, the girls play, we'll say some nice things. They know the ins and outs of what all of these players have done. So in the space of just a decade, Australian women's cricket has taken on a new perspective, one that sees it as part of an international sport supported by sponsors, coaches and the media. It seems that all those peaks and all those troughs have gone. Instead, there's a slow and grand progression to breathe some rarefied air. Part of that reflects the legacy of those who've worked to change the dynamic, to find ways to give women's cricket its place in the nation's sporting landscape. In this instance, it's Dame Quentin Bryce who helps deliver a change. But as Rena Hoare points out, she's one of a long line of women. I think it makes the history and the the development of the women's game just even more significant is that you had people of this calibre involved. In February 2008, a lightly framed teenager named Elise Perry walks out onto the MCG to bat in a T20 international for Australia against England. Elise is already playing soccer for her country. Now she's playing cricket after making her international debut against New Zealand only seven months earlier. The match is significant. It's the first of the so-called double headers. The women first, followed by the men's T20. There's a reasonable crowd in, maybe 25,000, and it's on telly. It's a glorious day. English medium pacer Isha Gua, later to become a cricket commentator, is bowling. Perry swings at one delivery and the ball is almost caught on the straight boundary. Two balls later, 
Perry low to the ground, heads studiously over the ball, connects in a sweet arc of the drive to send the ball way over the boundary. Rena Hoare is there watching the ball's journey. I sat right behind the wicket to watch the whole match. When Elise Perry hit the ball over the boundary for six, and she was only 16 and she was slight as a feather. I just went, oh my goodness, we can hit the ball over the boundary. So you get somebody in that's not come through the dogged, mm. defensive two-day cricket, hold up an end. You've got a fresh face that came in and then just put the English bowler over the wicket. So I just mm. went, my goodness. Perry makes 29 not out and takes four for 20 in her T20 debut. Australia wins by 21 runs and it looks like another Australian legend has arrived. This time, though, it feels like this one will last. The bedrock of history is there for her, and there is now a conviction that there will be no going back to the anonymity and the struggles that distinguished so much of women's cricket. The next steps are about consolidating those changes. It starts again in England, but once again, Australia takes it further as Raf Nicholson explains. The most important thing, I think, was the decision by the ECB in 2014 to issue the first ever professional contracts. And at that time, they were the first professional contracts anywhere in the world. Um, obviously, Cricket Australia have now kind of caught up and the Australian women are, are much better paid than the English players are. Um, but at that point in 2014, it was it was a very big deal to say we're, we want to issue these contracts and, and we want our women cricketers to be the best paid in the world. And that was significant for a number of reasons. Um, it was significant, I think, partly because um, it then opens up women's cricket as a career option. Um, and that means that you get more kind of girls um, who are kind of aspiring into that and you open it up. Because at, at that time in 2014, women's cricket was still quite middle class, I think. Actually, you open it up, therefore, to, to a different kind of player who will hopefully then come through and it takes away some of those financial barriers. It improves the standard massively. I mean, women's cricket now is basically unrecognisable from where it was in kind of, you know, 2005, 2010. Um, some of the kind of fielding that they pull off and the the power hitting. And that those are the things that you only really get if you are able to train full time. And then that in turn means that people are more excited and interested when they actually watch. If you can get people now to turn up and watch women's cricket, even if they have a, a certain preconception about what it's going to be like, they'll be quite surprised. So, you know, we then we see things like the 2017 World Cup final being a sellout. 86,000 people coming to the MCG in March 2020 to watch that T20 final. Those are things that are incredible, but it's I think it is that 2014 decision by the ECB to issue those professional contracts that almost has a domino effect. And then Cricket Australia do the same thing the next year because they're trying to keep up and there is, there's still this eternal element of England and Australia competing against each other. The culmination, perhaps even history's vindication, comes when the MCG hosts the T20 World Cup final in March 2020 and 86,000 fans watch Australia win. Coincidentally, Rena Hoare is sitting in almost the same spot she was when Elise Perry hit that famous six. I had tears rolling down my cheeks. I couldn't help it. I was sitting there all those years ago behind the wick. I was virtually in the same seat. I just could not believe the, the crowd and the standard of play and it was India it wasn't England because we always were playing England in my era um, it was just oh I just cried I couldn't believe it 
beyond my wildest expectations. We've seen how long and difficult it's been for the women's game to get to this point, and yet the last part of the journey has happened quickly. Momentum gives the game the final surge to reach this new level of achievement and acceptance. Lynn Larson is one who finds the pace of change remarkable. The progress that has been made since 2005 to be at the state where we're at now, where the girls fully professional, the game's on television, the game's well known, it's broadcast, a great standard of play. I think the progress over that time has been phenomenal. And I don't think a lot of us probably in our lives ever thought we would see what we're seeing now. Back in 2014, the Victorian Women's Cricket Association announces that the Premiership coach every year will be awarded the Nell McClarty Medal. The announcement is accompanied by a photo of Nell in her delivery stride, hat jammed on her head, long stockings on. It's taken in England in 1937 during Australia's first ever tour. It feels a long time ago. Much has happened. The game that Nell loved and invested so much of her time in looks radically different now. But of course it owes something to her and the women who walked out onto the Brisbane Exhibition Ground in 1934 as Australia's first women test cricketers. For them, it was the maiden summer that gave a gentle nod to the pioneers who came before them and laid a platform for those who followed. Now more than ever, on the eve of another Ashes series, it's time to celebrate the history of some of the nation's most remarkable women who helped transform Australian sport. This has been the sixth episode of The Maiden Summer. A special bonus episode will be released on the eve of the Women's Ashes Test in January, where we can catch up on what happened to many of those women who made their debut in The Maiden Summer. This podcast has been written and presented by Nick Richardson and produced by Chris Plumridge. And remember to subscribe to The Maiden Summer wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Rena Hoare, Anne Mitchell, Lynn Larson, Raf Nicholson and Ray Snim. For details on sources and resources, please go to nickrichardsonwriter.com.au.